Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've saved a stool for you here, and we have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. Let's start with the good, which really doesn't have a very good underlying story to it, but at least someone is stepping up on this issue, and it's the crisis at our southern border. Biden has addressed it as little as possible. Kamala Harris, I'm still not sure, has really addressed it publicly much. She's supposedly speaking with leaders in Central American countries about uh, dealing with root causes of things, but she has not been to the border yet, and uh, we certainly haven't heard many specifics from her. Well, the border state governors aren't planning to wait around much longer, and Greg Abbott is certainly stepping up. He tweeted out, I issued a disaster declaration along Texas's southern border to provide more resources to protect landowners and enforce all federal and state laws to combat criminal activities stemming from Biden's border crisis. In Biden's absence, Texas continues to step up. And so uh, in the statement, uh, the governor has directed the Texas Department of Public Safety to enforce, uh, again, all the different laws, including criminal trespassing, smuggling, human trafficking, directed the Texas Health and Human Services Commission to take all necessary steps to discontinue state licensure of any child care facility under a contract with the federal government that shelters or detains unlawful immigrants. And on and on it goes. He says President Biden's open border policies have paved the way for dangerous gangs and cartels, human traffickers, and deadly drugs like fentanyl to pour into our communities. Meanwhile, landowners along the border are seeing their property damaged and vandalized on a daily basis while the Biden administration does nothing to protect them. He says Texas will continue to stand up. So, uh, Jim, uh, it's the border states that obviously are, are feeling the brunt of this. We know from previous fights, Arizona in particular, that the states can't really replace the federal government in some of these capacities. But the federal government's not doing its job in a lot of ways. The Border Patrol is, but the administration's not. And so Greg Abbott's finally had enough. Good for him. Yeah, good for Greg Abbott. And the thing that kind of jumps out at me is that the Biden administration's preferred approach to the border crisis, and yes, it is a crisis, even though the AP doesn't like that word, and Politico doesn't like that word, and the Biden administration doesn't like that word, even though Biden sometimes slips up and refers to it as a crisis himself. They prefer the country stop paying attention to it. They, they, the attitude is their approach towards a lot of other problems, much like Russian hackers. If you ignore it, it'll go away. Um, and that, of course, doesn't really work. Now, what makes people notice this? If you live in a border state, chances are you're noticing it all the time. But for the rest of the country, uh, if you see a lot of headlines about it, it's in your mind. You get irritated about it. Maybe people complain to their congressman about it or they email or they get active on social media about it or they kind of, you know, fade. But, you know, other news topics come along and it kind of fades from people's concerns. Well, we know that roughly once a month we're going to get some new update on the number of Southwest border encounters from the Customs and Border Protection. And for the last two months, it's been a really, really, really bad number. Uh, you know, worst in 20 years. We haven't gotten the numbers for May yet. We'll probably get them sometime in the next couple of days. Shouldn't be any more than a week. And we'll get another series of headlines. Now, we don't know if it'll be another 200,000, but like, it, it, you know, 170 some thousand, or something. but it's probably gonna be a bad number. It's probably gonna be a bad number until the summer heat makes traveling north much more difficult. And so I think each time we get a bad series of numbers, it forces this. I think actions like Greg Abbott 
increase the pressure on the Biden administration. This is a very interesting report from Axios a couple of days ago saying that they're within the White House, there is a discussion of returning to an immigration policy that allows the U.S. government to more quickly deport families who illegally cross the border from Mexico. Um, it points out that a lot of Democrats who would not like this. They, they associate this with the bad old days of the Trump administration. Well, they're reviewing it. Um, there's not no sense of when they're actually going to make a decision. The White House is emphasizing no final determinations have been made. But look, each month that there are really bad numbers and each month that you're seeing loud complaining from the likes of Greg Abbott, the more likely it is there's going to be so much pressure on the administration that Biden feels compelled to do something and expedited removal might come back and get used again, which would at least be some mitigation on this ongoing problem, or as some of us would call it, a crisis. Biden has uh, reversed uh, Trump's policy of asylum seekers having to wait in Mexico till their claims were uh, dealt with. Uh, there's not only catch and release happening, there's just release happening. Some aren't even given court dates uh, from what we're hearing down there. Which leads some to believe that uh, you know Biden's not all that worried about it. He sees these folks as uh, potential new voters. I don't know if that's cynical or the longer this goes on uh, without much clear direction from this administration on what they're planning to do about it, uh, how to view this. What do you think, Jim? Is, is, is this part of the plan, as some believe, or do you think they just don't know what to do? A little bit of both. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, Greg, embrace the healing power of and. Um, <laughs> look, I, I think that, you know, in, in the abstract, most Democrats see, I'd like to think that everybody across the board likes legal immigrants and welcomes legal immigrants. We might have some disagreements about how many legal immigrants should be allowed into the United States. For a really long stretch, the United States has legalized and given green cards to about a million people a year, which is by far more than any other country in the whole wide world. And it's that's that's a pretty darn generous and, and welcoming country. And even if you cut it in half to 500,000 per year, that would still be very high compared to uh, all other countries and things like that. So I don't think I don't think that wishing to restrict legal immigration is by itself xenophobic. I think xenophobic comes in when you're like, I don't like those people. You see it as a that I think you know, if you're saying, you know, we're not doing a terribly great job of assimilating immigrants. We're having some difficulties here. We need to do this in relation to economic circumstances and things like that, I think that's entirely reasonable. I think most Democrats reject this entirely. I think a lot of Democrats believe that immigration enforcement and border enforcement is at its very heart morally wrong. At its very heart, it is unfair. At its very heart, it is a privilege for you to be get all the rights of citizenship just because you were born here and that other perfectly decent people who want to come here but who have not done so legally are denied them. In the end, Democrats don't really believe in the concept of citizenship. They believe citizenship is basically, well, you're here. That's why it so angers them that certain, you know, U.S. benefits, government benefits, rights, privileges, things like that could only be limited to U.S. citizens. Um, in their mind, that there's no distinction. In fact, I think this is very clear. They prefer some people who come here illegally to native-born Americans. Now, the thing is, look, you know, this being native-born, being born overseas, none of that inherently makes you a good person or a bad person. But in the minds of Democrats, they latch onto this. And that's why you so often hear people quoting the poem at the Statue of Liberty as if it's official U.S. policy. It's not. It's a beautiful, inspirational thought. But our job is to craft policy that reflects our ideals, but also accommodates realities. If the U.S. said, anybody in the whole wide world who wants to get here, come on over. It's welcome. You'd probably have a billion people here within a few years. And that would not work out well, trust me. 
No, I think that's exactly right. I still remember Jim Acosta arguing that the Trump administration immigration policy did not live up to the Emma Lazarus poem on the side of the Statue of Liberty. And he was reminded that that has never been U.S. immigration policy. But anyway, let's talk about a fantastic new sponsor. We introduced them yesterday, Omaha Steaks. Jim, I had more of their products last night. As I mentioned, I had the steaks on Monday. Fantastic. Uh, very tender. Lots of flavor. Whole family loved them for the cookout. Uh, then last night, we had the burgers and the Omaha Steakhouse fries. The burgers cooked out great, uh, nice and juicy, big portions, uh, nice hefty burgers, and it was very, very tasty. And I got to say, the big surprise, I knew the burgers would be good because I've had them before, the Steakhouse fries, fantastic. Uh, Coming like potato wedges and uh, with the, with the seasoning, absolutely uh, could not get enough of those. I think there's a few left, so I might have those for a snack a little bit later today. But uh, when it comes to Omaha steaks and when it comes to grilling season and Father's Day around the corner, Omaha's got you covered. Now, Omaha steaks aren't just steak. They are the best steak you will eat in your life, guaranteed. Visit omahasteaks.com, keyword martini, and order the Get Out and Grill assortment, which includes four 10-ounce butcher's cut strips, four boneless chicken breasts, four Omaha Steaks burgers, four gourmet jumbo franks, a 16-ounce package of Omaha Steakhouse fries, four caramel apple tartlets, and signature seasoning. Send Dad more than just a gift. Send him an experience he will love and he can share with you. Absolutely. And don't forget, again, for a limited time, like Jim just said, four free New York strip burgers with your order. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword martini. omahasteaks.com, keyword martini. Man, that stuff's good. All right, Jim, big story today. Uh, You've got it covered in the morning jolt. Vanity Fair actually first reporting this story. A months-long Vanity Fair investigation, interviews with more than 40 people, and a review of hundreds of pages of U.S. government documents, including internal memos, meeting minutes, and email correspondence, found that conflicts of interest, stemming in part from large government grants supporting controversial virology research, hampered the U.S. investigation into COVID-19's origin at every step. In one State Department meeting, officials seeking to demand transparency from the Chinese government say they were explicitly told by colleagues not to explore the Wuhan Institute of Virology's gain-of-function research because it would bring unwelcome attention to U.S. government funding it. In an internal memo obtained by Vanity Fair, Thomas Donano, former acting assistant secretary of the State Department's Bureau of Arms Control, Verification and Compliance, man, that's a long title, wrote that staff from two bureaus, his own and the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation, warned leaders within his bureau not to pursue an investigation into the origin of COVID-19 because it would open a can of worms if it continued. And we've also, of course, gotten the Freedom of Information Act uh, release of many of uh, Anthony Fauci's emails and uh, uh, he was at least aware of the possibility that uh, this was a leak due to gain-of-function research in Wuhan pretty early on in the process. Jim, you obviously have said in the morning jolt today that this is a really big deal. How big of a deal is it? Well, let me give this the highest compliment I can possibly imagine, Greg. It's even better than what I wrote. <laughs> um, and, and you know, joking about my own ego aside, no, it really is phenomenal. Work, Vanity Fair, and uh, Catherine Ivan. 
not part of the vast right-wing conspiracy, so to speak. And Vanity Fair is kind of better known for, you know, does, does some good journalism, but it's kind of more known for glossy. This is a huge in-depth investigative uh, piece of work. And I think like the single most important, but we've, we've known the broad outlines of this story. We all knew what was going on with the, 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 you know, that what was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It was gain-of-function research. It was taking viruses that were already potentially dangerous, but then working on them to make them more dangerous and to make them more contagious. And the idea was, by making them that, we'll be able to figure out how they became more dangerous, ideally how to fight them. By the way, someone made a very good point. For all the talk about gain-of-function research, how much did it really help in the development of vaccines? How much did all this research has been going on for years and years? Like when we needed it the most, did it really offer us any great insights? I think that's an unresolved question at this point. But early on, the U.S. there was a working group within the U.S. State Department that did not want too much focus upon the U.S. funding of gain-of-function research through the National Institutes of Health that Fauci apparently had signed off on, and that Fauci insisted he did not know. Uh, how exactly this had, uh, you know, whether the, the money had gone to gain a function research, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, I find that a little tough to believe. It is now, based on the quotes in this story, clear that some portions of the U.S. government did not want to look that hard at where this virus came from. And, you know, whatever else we learn, that is utterly inexcusable. This was their job. You can't stop another pandemic in the future if you do not understand how this pandemic started in the here and now. And there was you know, clearly like, why would they not want people looking at that? Well, if they were absolutely certain that this didn't cause, wasn't caused by a leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, there'd be no, there'd be no worried about it. The only reason to say, no, 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 don't do this. The quote is, it's going to open up a can of worms is because they're afraid that in fact, the lab leak did happen and that a portion of the lab leak occurred at an institution that was doing research that was partially funded by the U.S. government. A whole lot of people in the United States government had a lot of uh, their reputations at risk here. This looks like it includes Francis Collins. This looks like it includes Anthony Fauci. And this has just become a huge story. Um, it kind of fuels every conspiracy theory. And it's, you know, people who listen to this podcast will know, Greg, you and I, I mean, we joke about the, the you know, uh, uh, UFOs and stuff. And we joke, but like, this basically says the government had a suspicion that this was, you know, not just a random bat somewhere biting somebody, some farmer in a cave, and that's what caused it all. It looks like this, you know, and it looks like our government didn't want to know because they feared the implications. And that is going to stir up enormous amounts of justified rage. And it's going to enorm, you know, um, it's going to do more to damage the trust in the public health experts in this country more than anything, God, more than anything any any angry crowd on Capitol Hill could ever do. Another paragraph that you put in the morning jolt that I think is worth uh, mentioning here. It says, for most of the past year, the lab leak scenario was treated not simply as unlikely or even inaccurate, but as morally out of bounds. In late March, former CDC director Robert Redfield received death threats from fellow scientists after telling CNN that he believed COVID-19 had originated in a lab. Quote, I was threatened and ostracized because I proposed another hypothesis, Redfield told Vanity Fair. I expected it from politicians. I didn't expect it from science. So... That's obviously taking it to a whole new level, Jim. And it also reminds me of what you said last week about the under-news uh, theory of Mickey Kaus, that when you see all of a sudden people in power shifting positions and suddenly acknowledging that this is something worth looking at when before it was absolutely verboten, uh, that something's probably coming. So did they know the Vanity Fair story and perhaps others uh, were in the works and so they had to act like they weren't a stick in the mud? Or is there something else to interpret here? 
That's a really interesting theory there, Greg. I, I, I think that's a, a strong possibility there. I, I also think that, uh, by the way, my observation regarding uh, the comment from Redfield was that if you, uh, when somebody threatens to kill you, it probably is a sign you hit a nerve. It probably, uh, it doesn't say that your hypothesis is true, but if somebody, if you put out a hypothesis and somebody says, if you keep saying that I'm going to kill you, it probably doesn't mean that what you're saying is totally cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Um, if I said to you, Greg, I'm fairly certain that, uh, that the Detroit Lions are going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> that's not likely to make you so angry that you threatened to kill me. <laughs> now, if I said, um, I think Mitch Trubisky is going to leave some, you know, uh, underperformance cooties that will get onto Justin Fields. <laughs> then you might get angry enough to kill me because you think that's a real possibility. That strikes you as a much more plausible and frightening scenario than, uh, than the Detroit Lions winning the Super Bowl. Um, look, I, that you know, here's the it shouldn't make you that. The, the other possibility I think we're kind of getting from this after everything we've learned over the last 18 months or so, Greg, you think some like like the, the stereotype of the mad scientist? You think some scientists are a little, you know, <laughs> their alphabet may not go all the way to Z? Yeah. Like, you know, really good in the lab, but common sense, emotional control, and all that kind of stuff isn't really their, their strong suit. That's been known to happen. That's been known to happen among a few scientists. But uh, I, I would assume there's quite a bit of money at stake here, too, and, and maybe that's what they're responding mm. to. Uh, and, and by the way, Jim, just to clarify on the Bears, um, if underperforming quarterbacks was going to turn me into a murderer, it would have happened a long time ago. <laughs> that's pretty much the entire legacy of the Bears uh, during my lifetime. So um, you're safe. I think. All right, let's talk about uh, another great sponsor we have today. Uh, if you can't get a straight answer from your government officials about uh, the most significant pandemic in a century, at least you can save some money on your home and auto insurance. But there's only one company that can actually compare it for you properly and help you save hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So get a better insurance with Gabby. And I can tell you, you can do it because I've actually been on their site and seen how it works. Gabby is the one true comparison platform with fast, verifiable quotes and not just ballpark guesses. Use your current policy to find a better policy, comparing your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance companies. We're talking about companies like Progressive and Nationwide and Travelers, all in one place. You use your current insurance information to get started, and it's free, and they only show you policies that are the same or better than your current coverage. And many of them may be at a lower price. Gabby customers save $961 per year on average, and they will never sell your information, so you'll never have to worry about annoying spam or robocalls. I can't stress how easy this is. You just go on uh, gabby.com slash martini. You go through the questions on the, the quiz right off the top there. And it's not even really a quiz. It's like, where do you live? What's your zip code? How old are you? And that sort of thing. Very easy questions to answer in a very short period of time. Really just a couple of minutes. Eventually at the end, I think it's about nine or ten questions, you link to your current insurance policy. And very soon after that, you see the comparisons from other companies for the very same coverage. We did not need to switch, but it was great to know and have that peace of mind that we didn't need to. But I can tell you, you can save hundreds and hundreds of dollars uh, from some companies if you switch for the very same coverage. So it's definitely worth your time to check it out. So put your policy to the test like I did. You can get a better insurance with Gabby, totally free to check, no obligation. And as Jim said, they don't sell your info. Go to Gabby.com slash martini. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash martini gabby dot com slash martini all right jim learning how much obfuscation there was from our government may lead you to want to have a different government well 
We're not going to have any secession from the country for a while, it seems. But uh, there is an effort afoot in parts of Oregon to leave Oregon. And as the New York Times has pointed out, there are really two significant parts politically uh, to Oregon. There's the eastern half, which is agricultural and politically conservative. And then there's the uh, wetter and woodier western half, as they put it, which has long been more populated and more liberal. You know, that's where Portland is, which is melting down on a daily basis. And uh, there's a lot there's a lot of political wackiness off to the left. So there are five eastern counties in Oregon that uh, have said now in non-binding votes that they would like to leave Oregon and join with their more like-minded conservative neighbors further east in Idaho. Jim, I'm extraordinarily sympathetic uh, to this effort. I can only imagine what it's like to be uh, completely dominated by a certain section of the state when the part where you live is uh, definitely not politically aligned with that. The question is whether this is actually plausible, and my suspicion is not anytime soon. You know, Greg, I have this feeling that we've discussed this before when certain places in Virginia yeah. on the western side wanted to go over and join West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I'm of two minds. The first thing is, no, it's, it's not going to happen. Don't get your hopes up. We're not going to see CalExit. We're not going to see uh, you know the, the talk of turning California into two states. State lines are probably going to stay exactly as they are You know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. But that having been said, I don't know if we discussed this last time. Greg, if people are that dissatisfied with how their state government is operating, would it make sense to create some sort of like county level free agency period <laughs> where at some point your contract with your existing state runs out and you're, you know, particularly if you're a border county, you can look at the other state and say, mm, do we like that better? Do we like their tax rates better? Do we like their, their governing philosophy? Do we like the way they do things? What's in it for us? And you could have states trying to compete to try to get people. We've all heard about people moving with their feet. Well, Greg, we're a more sedentary population right now. We don't like moving. We don't like getting up off the couch. Why not just redraw the state lines the way we want? And honest to goodness, I say this way, like I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but you can make the argument that Northern Virginia makes more sense as part of Maryland or as part of the District of Columbia, for that matter, that basically that uh, the entire national capital region is its own separate entity. And that doesn't make necessarily a lot of sense for one part to be governed in Annapolis and one part to be governed in Richmond and the other part to be governed from Washington, D.C. itself. There are uh, all kinds of this. And people have pointed out how much you look at a map of uh, Illinois and how basically Cook County is blue. Maybe there's one or two other suburban counties that are blue and the rest of the state is red. And that's a phenomenon that's work in a lot of these places. Uh, of course, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, uh, eastern Oregon counties would be like, we've got nothing to do with, with Portland. It's a completely different culture, but because they got just enough votes to outweigh us, we don't really get any say in how things get shaken out around here. And that's probably a phenomenon in a lot of states. So maybe this would you know, encourage some accountability for this. So I don't think it's really going to go anywhere. Um, but I do kind of think the idea of allowing people to uh, contemplate changing it. I mean, the other thing is think about all the jobs this would create for cartographers, Greg. <laughs> if every couple of years we had to redraw the state lines, we, we already draw, we draw you know, congressional district lines. So what would happen if we ended up screwing that? I mean, Rand McNally would be looking at this and going, yes, you know, real excitement. <laughs> of that, so. Exactly. That would be uh, shifting. And, you know, if you allow some border counties to switch states, you create new border counties. And so if you don't improve, uh, you can uh, push the mm. push the boundary a little further in that direction. Now it's, like this- in, it's in British soccer. If you don't do well, you get bumped down to the next league. 
<laughs> if you're a really lousy state government, like say New York or something, like or or California or maybe Illinois, maybe maybe like maybe just bit by bit you'd keep losing counties, as a strong indicator. But uh, yeah, yeah, people really don't like what they're seeing in Albany, and each year a couple more counties decide to join either. Uh, well, I guess on one side you'd have Vermont. That's not a huge advantage. Um, or you could actually with the end of Republican governor. What am I saying? That might be a huge improvement. Um, or Pennsylvania, or I guess New Jersey, or something like that. Yeah, a free agent period would be nice. Uh, do you sign multi-year deals? Do you have signing bonuses? Do you have uh, you know performance clauses? Uh, how does all that work? Instead of state governments seeing what they can do to you, <laughs> seeing state governments competing to see what they can do for you. Nice. Yeah. Create I'm some, holding out. Create, I want a better deal. <laughs> create some conditions where people actually want to be there. I want a signing there. bonus. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Guaranteed. All right. Well, good luck, people in Eastern Oregon. We certainly feel your pain, and you probably would be a lot happier in Idaho. And uh, Oregon would just get bluer in that situation, but uh, maybe your best option. So, uh, well, we'll see where it goes, if anywhere. Jim, I will see you tomorrow. Take care. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Uh, we are very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Also remember to get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. The Biden administration is blocking lawmakers from getting to the truth at the border, and the Chinese have very disturbing ambitions in space. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, I'll dig into these issues and a whole lot more with Texas Congressman Brian Babin, and I'll also discuss the left suddenly admitting that the COVID lab leak theory is worth investigating. Join me. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts.